Well, good morning. I'm so glad to see you here today. We want to welcome those worshiping with us online. Glad that you could be here during this Advent season. You know, you came, it was raining outside, but you came anyway. Look around. These are the people you'll see in heaven right here. These are the dedicated people who are not afraid of raindrops. So we're glad that you're here. Now, during this season of Advent, I'm going to be reading a scripture each week to you. So today I ask you to listen as I read Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name of Jesus. So during this season, we'll be reading the scriptures, and I hope it's meaningful to you. Now, way, way, way back in 1981, Laura and I were newlyweds. We were struggling students. We arranged to meet Laura's parents in Gatlinburg, Tennessee for the weekend. I was a student at Asbury Seminary. Laura was a student at Asbury College. I was serving two small churches about 45 miles south of Lexington, Kentucky. The plan was for Laura and me to drive down to Gatlinburg and her folks to drive up from Tracy City, Tennessee so that we could meet together. We met at the Best Western Motel in Gatlinburg, and since we were struggling students on a tight budget, we decided that we would all four share a room together. We had a great time until it was time to go to sleep. And then Laura's dad said goodnight, and when his head hit the pillow, he started snoring loudly, really, really loudly. Now, since he had been a railroad engineer, he had lost a great deal of his hearing. He couldn't really hear very much without his hearing aids, and since he didn't wear those to bed, he could not hear himself snoring. However, everyone else could. He would snore, and all three of us would laugh. He slept great, but Laura and her mother and I and probably the people in the rooms beside us didn't get much sleep that night. Now, in the first chapter of Matthew, there wasn't a father-in-law in the room that night with Joseph, but there was an angel. And after the encounter that Joseph had with the angel, I'm sure he didn't get much sleep that night either. Remember the story with me. Joseph and Mary were engaged. 
They were going through the traditional year of engagement before their formal marriage could take place. They had not yet had a wedding ceremony, but in the eyes of the community, they were as good as married. Even though they were not living together and even though they had not been physically intimate. Suddenly, out of the blue, Joseph receives word that Mary is expecting. And you can imagine that he was shaken and heartsick and surprised. But he was a kind man and he loved Mary. And so he decided not to humiliate her publicly, but to quietly break it off. As he struggled with this, the angel appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, don't be afraid. Go ahead and take Mary as your wife. Your love for each other is unique and special. The spirit is with her, bringing new life. The child is of God. It is God's will that she bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, in the Bible, oftentimes, angels appear as messengers from God. And this powerful message from the Christmas angel came about to Joseph. The angel tells Joseph that Mary will give birth to a Savior. And then the angel does something interesting. He tells Joseph what to name the baby. It's remarkable. There are these images and lessons that can be learned from this scripture. We learn about the naming of the Christ child. First of all, let's look at how important names are today. Now, people tend to live up to or down to their names. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, take it, for example, if you ever met somebody named Smiley, you wouldn't expect them to frown all the time. Even when they're going through a hard time, you're going, come on, your name's Smiley, get with it. I don't, you don't have a bad day. Just be happy. Or maybe somebody named Happy. You expect them to be one of the happiest people you know. Or what about somebody, a woman, say, named Sunny? You just expect her to have blonde hair and a sunny disposition. But what if her parents had named her Stormy? Would she have a totally different kind of personality? Would she be a different individual and have a different disposition? We parents need to be careful when we name our children. The emphasis on names is significant in the Bible. In the Interpreter's Dictionary, it tells us in there that the names that are given are not just to be able to identify someone, to label and an individual so you'll know what to call them. But they're often commonly expressed expressions and convictions associated with the birth of a child and that child's future. For example, Elijah means the Lord is my God. And so it's no accident that Elijah grew up to be a courageous prophet. He told the people to follow the one true God, Yahweh. He steered them away from the Canaanite God who was Baal. And then the name Moses is also fitting. It literally means drawn up out of the water. You remember how baby Moses and all the Hebrew children were in danger. The king of Egypt decided that because they had so many slaves and so many were being born every year, that he would take all the young Hebrew baby boys 
and he would have them killed. He would kill them so that they could not grow up and so that the slave population would not increase. He was afraid they would rebel. But the family of Moses came up with a creative way to save him. They put him in a blanket and they put him in a basket and then they put him in the Nile River and the Pharaoh's daughter found the baby and literally drew him up out of the water and adopted him. Later, you remember it was Moses who led the children of Israel through the Red Sea heading to the promised land. So being drawn up out of the water is certainly a good name for Moses. And then the name Barnabas. Barnabas is one of the favorites in the New Testament because his name means a child of encouragement. Wouldn't you like to be known as a child of encouragement? People see you coming. They want to be around you. They enjoy your company because you're an encourager. In the scripture, there are names given, but sometimes God would change names when he changed identities of people for his purposes. For example, the name Abram was changed by God to Abraham. Sarah, his wife, was changed to Sarah. They just changed the spelling. After Jacob came along and wrestled with the angel, then he was changed. His name was changed to Israel. And then you know, of course, that Saul became the apostle Paul on the Damascus road. God changed his name. And Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, which means the rock. Now that brings us to Matthew, the first chapter, and the naming of Christ child, and point number two. Look at what they named the Christ child. The angel says to Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the gospel song that maybe you remember singing years ago said, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. And certainly there is something special about the name Jesus. It means Savior, or it means the Lord's Helper. Now, the word Jesus is the Greek form of the word in Hebrew, which is Joshua. And you remember what Joshua did, don't you? They wrote a song about it. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Well, Jesus is a wall breaker, too. And Paul expresses that in Ephesians. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, I want you to get used to this idea of Jesus being a wall breaker, of breaking down the walls, because he breaks down walls of hostility. We can understand who he is by understanding the temple in his day. The temple was a place with a lot of walls. There was a lot of prejudice there. Not everyone could go past all of the walls in the temple. Some of the walls, like those who had the high altar or the holy of holies, 
Those were series of walls holding back the people from God. Can you imagine what it was like for them? They couldn't have a relationship with God like you and I have. We couldn't know him personally through Jesus because Jesus had not come to save them yet. And so what would happen in the Old Testament would be that God was someone far away. And they were so in awe of God, as we all should be, but but they were so removed from God. Now, the first wall in the temple held back the foreigners, the people that came from another race or another culture or another nation. They were not allowed in. The second wall held back the women. They could come into the temple, but they could only come in so far because the rest was reserved for others. The third wall was for the Jewish men. They could come in further than the foreigners and the women, but they couldn't go in as far as the priest. The fourth wall had a veil around it surrounding the Holy of Holies, holding back from God everyone except the high priest, who was permitted to go through the veil just one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement. Now think about it from this perspective. The Holy of Holies represents the presence of God. And if you're the high priest, you can only go into the presence of God one day out of the year. But what happens if something happens to you while you're in there? Who's going in after you? I mean, you could get struck dead, right? So what did they do? Well, they tied a rope around his ankle. And if he passed out or tripped or stumbled or something happened to him, they could pull him back out that way. The Holy of Holies represented the presence of God. But listen to what the presence of God was like. It was remote. It was fearsome. And it was unapproachable. And then Jesus came and broke down all the walls that divide us so that the people could know God. And that's what Christmas is all about. It's God breaking down the walls. God coming warmly and wonderfully into our lives. We forget about Christmas when we neglect the teaching of Christ, when we start building up walls around other people that divide us, when we build walls that exclude and belittle and separate, when we build walls that encourage hostility or hatred or prejudice or bigotry, think about it. When we forget about Christmas, we get away from the teachings of Christ and the same old ancient walls start coming back up to divide us. First, there are the walls that divide the nations. But you see, Christ came as the Prince of Peace, the Savior of all people, the Lord of all nations. Second, there were the walls that divided men and women. But you know, Jesus came to liberate us, and not just men, but women in particular. If you read the Bible, you study the Gospels, you see how he respected women and how he included them. He gave them equal rights and equal opportunities. Third, there were the walls that divided the clergy and laity. Did you know in the Bible there's no distinction between clergy and laity? We're all one. We're all ministers in Christ. I've told you that our daughter, Catherine, our younger daughter, is 26 years old. Just a few years ago, she told me something that blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. I laughed out loud. 
She said, Daddy, when I was little, I thought that all the people in the church were named after the preacher. <laughs> Joe Lay and the lay people. <laughs> I got a buddy down the road. His name is Brad Good. Brad Good and the good people. That's what she thought. But you know what? She was right because we are the family of God and there is no distinction between us. And you remember what happened when Jesus was on the cross and when the Holy of Holies, that veil in front of it, it was torn apart from the top to the bottom when he was crucified. It was just another way of God saying, I've broken down the wall. He's available to you now. Third and finally, look how Jesus lived up to his name. The good news of Christmas is that Christ is the peace of Christmas. He makes us all one. He divides down the walls. He shows us that we are family. We are the family of God. Now, that profound truth was captured in a story that was written by an American journalist who had to spend one Christmas Eve with his family in Paris. Listen to what he writes. Everything had gone wrong. When we checked into our hotel room on Christmas Eve, there was no Christmas spirit in our hearts. It was rainy and cold when we went out to eat. We found this drab little restaurant, and it was shoddily decorated for the holidays. There were only five tables that were occupied. There were two German couples, there were two French families, and there was an American sailor by himself. In the corner, there was a piano player wearily playing Christmas music. I was too tired to leave, and I noticed that the other customers were eating in stony silence. Then one person who seemed to be happy in that place was the American sailor. While he was eating, he was writing a letter, and he had a smile on his face. At the table, the French family on her left, the father slapped one of the children for some minor infraction, and the boy began to cry. On our right, the German wife began berating her husband. My wife ordered our meal in French, and the waiter brought us the wrong thing, and I scolded her. Suddenly, all of us were interrupted by an unpleasant blast of cold air. Through the front door, there came an old flower woman. She wore a dripping, battered overcoat and shuffled on wet, run-down shoes. She went from one table to another. Flowers, she said, only one franc, but nobody bought any. Wearily, she sat down at the table between the sailor and us. To the waiter, she said, a bowl of soup. I haven't sold a flower all afternoon. Then to the piano player, she said hoarsely, can you imagine Joseph soup on Christmas Eve? He pointed to his tipping jar on the piano, which was also empty. Then the young sailor finished his meal and he got up to leave. He put on his coat and he walked over to the flower woman's table. Merry Christmas, he said, smiling, and he picked up two corsages. How much are they, he asked. Two francs, she said. Taking one of the corsages, he pressed it flat, 
He put it inside the letter that he had written, and then he handed the woman a 20-franc note. But she said, sir, I don't have any change. Wait, I'll get some from the waiter. No, ma'am, said the sailor. Leaning over and kissing the flower woman on her cheek, he said, this is my Christmas present to you. Then he came to me and said, may I have the permission to present this flower to your beautiful daughter? And in one quick motion, he gave the corsage to my wife, wished us all a Merry Christmas, and then he was gone. Everyone stopped eating. Everyone had been watching the sailor. Everyone was silent. And then a few seconds later, Christmas exploded in that restaurant. The old flower woman jumped up, waving the 20-franc note. She shouted to the piano player, Joseph, my Christmas present, and you shall have half so that you can feast too. The piano player began to belt out, good King Winslow's. My wife waved her corsage in time with the music, and she appeared 20 years younger. She began to sing, and our three boys began to sing with her enthusiastically. The Germans began singing in German. The waiter embraced the flower woman, and they sang in French. The Frenchman who had slapped the boy earlier was now drumming the rhythm with his fork against the glass, and with his son now sitting in his lap, they were singing together. A few hours earlier, 18 people had been spending a miserable evening together, but it ended up the happiest Christmas Eve they'd ever experienced, all because a young American sailor had Christmas in his soul and Christ in his heart. He gave us Christmas. That's what Christmas does. It breaks down the walls that divide us. And he shall be called the wall breaker because he will save his people from their sins. Sometimes you and I want to cry out to God. Sometimes we want to ask God to come in power and to do something dramatic because of the world in which we live. Sometimes we've seen too much hunger and too much homelessness. Sometimes we've seen too much war and too much of a struggling economy. Sometimes we want to cry out to God, God, do something. Come in power. Transform this situation. If you've experienced those feelings, then that qualifies you for Advent. That stretch of days in the Christian year in which we move. Here we approach the season of urgency and yearning. And we hear the words of the prophet Isaiah as he cries out a prayer to God saying, Burst from the heavens and come down. He wants the mountains to tremble. He wants the divine presence of God to come into action. Israel has turned away from God for too long. And the prophet desires that God once again be the God who was strong and terrifying and decisive and active in human affairs. Hear, hear. 
But as soon as we recognize in these moments what we crave, the Almighty to break in, we also realize that if he does that, that we will stand before him too. In our impatience for the way of the world, we often overlook our participation in the suffering of others. And so Isaiah says it's hard to look and see that God is hidden from us because of our own participation of sin in the world. Listen, could it be that the very things that make us rage also reflect who we have become? And so in this tangled web of motives within us, we see that Isaiah comes to show us the way. We appeal to God, the potter, who molds us like clay into the people he wants us to be. And we ask God to remember that we really are still his people. And as Advent begins, we all say, come, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.